Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify podcast with new episodes every Wednesday. Check us out on Instagram at The Conspiracy Pod. I'm Carter Roy. Today, we're talking to Justin Sales, one of our colleagues from The Ringer, about his new podcast, The Wedding Scammer. After that, we'll be digging into the story of a notorious con artist that caused upheaval in the high-class world of luxury wine auctions. We'll get into our interview with Justin right after this. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hey, Justin. Welcome to the show. Carter, thank you so much for having me. Yes, I'm so excited about what we're talking about today. Uh, and as our listeners probably know, we both work at Spotify mm -hmm. uh, in the podcast studios. Um, tell us a little about what you've done for The Ringer. Right. So actually, in my day job, I oversee all of our music content. And that goes for I was one of the people behind 60 songs that explain the 90s. And I work on Bandsplain, and I work on Dissect, and I also write and edit. So we're discussing my true crime podcast, but it's a little bit outside of the stuff I normally do. That is amazing. Uh, I love that stuff. I used to do VH1 shows back in the day. Oh, wow. Were, okay. Summer, so <laughs> that, so that. Um, and yeah, The Ringer's obviously usually pop culture and sports, uh, and now you're delving into true crime. So how did you get into that? And It's an yeah. interesting thing. So this story starts with actually 
me being scammed very lightly, okay? okay? okay. All right. <laughs> Not too bad. Yeah. Um, I moved to LA and I got recruited for a job. And it very quickly turned out that this job was not real. And I was never able to quite figure out what happened here. Like, hired 50 people to work in a WeWork in downtown Los Angeles. And he sent a whole bunch of, like, emails saying, you're going to be paid. You know, this is going to be paid out of this fund. And then the money never came. And it was just always this weird thing, like... Who is this strange guy? Because he told these elaborate backstories, like his father was a coal tycoon and he had owned all these restaurants in New York and just all these crazy things that almost seemed unbelievable. But look, I don't know anybody that's that rich as this guy was saying he was. Yeah. So, you know, and I almost feel like the taller the tail, the easier it is to buy because you're like, oh, you got all this money. This is how money works. You got a bunch of it. he He was funding this. It was a media company. He wanted to be the next Huffington Post, but better, which is just, it was... 2016, so (laughs) a slightly reasonable thing to say, but he said he was funding it out of a trust fund. Well, you know, a couple years go by, and some people had created some Facebook groups to kind of track this guy, and people start dropping in information, and then all of a sudden, one day, I don't want to step on the podcast too much, I also know that people are listening for the story later, but um, we end up discovering that he had gone into the wedding business, and we found out that he had been sued a bunch for his time in the wedding business because he would basically, you know, sign a contract and then not deliver on those services and was sued many times for that. Okay. And and so you were like, did you have face-to-face time when- When, when I worked when, for him, absolutely. Worked, absolutely. Okay. And were you, when you were, I'm just curious, like when you were doing the work, were you kind of like- is this work? Like, is this adding up to anything aside from not getting paid? You know, it was funny because he hired a bunch of people who had no experience in media. So I, they didn't really know what was going on. I did because I was, you know, I was in my early 30s then. I had, I had, you know, I, I worked for newspapers. I worked for websites. I just, yeah. magazines, I had been around. I so just you know happened what to be. normal would kind of look like. But the interesting thing was it didn't feel real, but it also felt like a lot of work. Like it wasn't. Whatever it was, it just, it was a lot of work, but it didn't feel real. So fascinating. It's so fascinating. And then. Right. Cause it, right. You're like, well, if we're doing a lot of work, it must be must work. Be for, must be for something. Right. Yeah. Why would, yeah. How can you generate work that's going nowhere? But so, you know, then we, we discover he had gone into the wedding business and, you know, he, he left a lot of people very angry there. Um, and then a couple years later, actually right before the pandemic, I discover, I had always had my, my doubts on this guy being who he said he was, but right before the pandemic, I discover that not only had he moved out of LA, he had moved up to San Francisco, but he was using at least two aliases in San Francisco. And he, without stepping on too much, he landed in the San Francisco Chronicle, which is how I found him, and they were able to connect him to the LA things. And that kind of, so I'm sitting there in the pandemic and I'm like, I got an idea. I wanna, I wanna do some digging around on this very strange thing that happened to me with this obviously like very strange, charismatic, compelling figure who, I don't know if what he was telling me was a lie or if right. what he's telling people up there is a lie. But at some point, he's lying. Something isn't right. And so this is just you, though, taking on. You're like, I happen to know this guy from this weird work thing. Yes. But now I see him popping up here. 
aliases, which is like such a like curious. Who has aliases? Why would you have aliases? What's going on, right? But crucially, it's not a crime to use an alias. (laughs) Okay, because I I I feel like I have to say that both for legal reasons and also just I can you know my my name is Justin, but if I told you my name is Justin, it's like it's not a crime. Yeah, you could totally make it up, right? And maybe maybe he's got a reason to do it, right? But did some digging, found out he has a very. illustrious background i'll just put it so wow. he he has he has a history and he um you know don't want to step on it too much also don't want to bore people with too many details in the moment but he has and he had an extensive criminal record wow and did you find this all yourself were you using other people like did you start to get into the world of being a detective well this is the thing so in the process of making this i discovered that you know, the, one of the things I learned very early on was when people feel as though they've been scammed and they go to the police, the police often are just like, we don't really know how to make sense of this or, um, you know, this sounds like it might be a civil matter because you sounds like you gave him this money. If, or if, I, if you gave him money, it's not a crime. It's not a crime. Even, kind of even, yeah. even if he was using a false name and he would, you know, he would have a lot of LLCs that he did things from. So the police were just kind of like, we don't really know what to do with this. So when these people felt as though they had been scammed, they kind of turned into amateur detectives on their own. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I discovered them pretty quickly. And this is funny because I mentioned those Facebook groups where people were dropping leads. Yeah. Very early on, many of us felt like amateur detectives. Yeah. Right. Then like interest kind of wanes. I'm the only one that like in, in, Basically, I'm sitting there in the pandemic board and I'm like, <laughs> I want to find out what happened with this. Yeah. I did the, the world is shut down. There is no sports or pop culture for the ringer to cover. <laughs> I, I, I want to, I want to spend my time doing this. Yeah. And, um, I find this network of people all over the country that have basically turned into amateur detectives themselves. And honestly, without them, I wouldn't know a lot of information I know about the guy. I wouldn't know his real name without these people. Oh, because the name he gave you wasn't the real, like... I'll, spo- I'll spoil that. I'll right. spoil I, I, I say it in the first five minutes of the first episode that he yeah. used a lot of aliases. I'll spoil that. I would not know this guy's real name if not for these that amateur detectives. It's mind-blowing to it's, realize, like, even though you know, you're like, oh, this guy might be up to something. You're like, oh, wait, I don't even know who this guy actually is. Couldn't even track him down. Exactly. And this is the thing. It's, you know, I, I always say this too. Um... People are like, well, why didn't you Google? And it's like, well, I don't Google every person that I meet. Like, mm. you know, Carter, you seem lovely. I'm mm. not going to get out of here and Google like every single detail of your life, right? And even if you did, I had some consumer, I was trying to buy a web um, uh, Wi-Fi expander the other day, looked at a review, looked good. And only through looking at the review is like, oh, this whole review is a fake. Like somebody's created fake front, which is like, that's just something simple. Of course, you could easily make a bunch of false things. Well, one thing he did was on his catering company for his website. He would post all of these awards that he won. And they just didn't make sense timing-wise because some of them would have happened while he was running this fake media company. Now, I can't, he posted a lot of them. And, you know, the lawyers will be happy if I say it, frame it like this. I can't say for certain that every single one of those were fake. I will say that every company I reached out to that got back to me told me those awards were fake. So he, but when you go to a website and you're looking for someone to work your wedding, you're looking for a caterer and you, and you know, caterers are very expensive. I think that's the thing. I don't think we need to 
ex- explain the stakes of a of a ruined no, no, wedding. You do, no, you do not. Right, or just like how much you can invest in a wedding. Exactly. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. but the caterer is one of the most expensive pieces of that. And mm-hmm. when people go to this website and they see all these awards, it's not like they're going to search like, oh, did he really win this award from the James Beard Foundation in 2014? Right. And you wouldn't even know how to back that up, even if you did, like, what am I called, James Beard Foundation? Like, yeah, of course not. You're just happy to see it. Oh, my gosh. So you do all this. And do you feel like you've learned anything in the process about people who get scammed or, like, any lessons you can take from it in it? Or? You know, the, the the whole amateur detective thing is something that I, like, really harp on as something that I learned throughout this, just, like, how people react when they feel like they're not being helped by the people that they think are in place, like, the authorities that they think are there to help them. Yeah. But in terms of, like, the nature of what it says about what people, what it feels like for people to feel as though they're scammed. Yeah. Um I think most people, and I think probably most people listening to this show, are not going to fall for the Nigerian prince um, scam. They're not going to, you know, you get the call about the extended warranty on your car. You're like, yeah, I, I just yeah. bought this car too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get out of here. You, yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you're not going to, the credit card, I mean, the, the gift card scheme. Like, we're, we're, a lot of us are way too smart for that. Yeah. But when the person is in front of you and they're telling you these things that almost seem unbelievable, but like, a lot of other things feel real, right? And they're right in front of you telling these things. I think a lot of us are more susceptible to that than we'd, than we'd like to believe. Yeah. And I also think that even when your gut says, this, maybe this person is lying to me, maybe this person is not, is not on the up and up, most of us don't behave that way. So when this is happening to you, there's something in your mind, logically, you're like, this can't be happening because I wouldn't do this to someone. I, I told, I, I, it's funny, the story we'll tell today about this uh, con artist in the wine world. It sounds like some people are onto it a little earlier, but that ex- is exactly what kicks in. And I know from my personal experience, exactly that, you start to realize like, oh, my own intuitive sense of like, I should be somewhat honest, honest, like I might tell a white lie or something, but like, I'm not going to just fabricate these massive things means that even if it feels not right, my mind's doing all this extra work to rationalize how that can't be so. And if the person's right in front of me, being nice to me in the moment, it's just so hard to actually be like, you are fully lying to me. Like, And unless it's happened, it's almost hard to know how hard it is to see through it when (laughs) those laser beams are directed at you. You know, I speak to a lot of people who feel as though they were really hurt by this guy, whether they were taken for money or just emotionally damaged or whatever it is. And they say that they're changed by this experience. Yeah. And that is, you know, I, I, I hope it comes across in the podcast. It's definitely something that sticks with me. But, like, that is one of the emotionally resonant parts of the story for me. That yeah. just how it alters the way you move about the world. And yeah. you just, it's always in the back of your head. Like, mm, should I ask to see this guy's ID this time? You know, should I, is this offer that feels too good to be true? That last one was too good to be true. Why wouldn't this one be? Totally. And in general, I think our trust in other people starts changing. You go a little bit from the benefit of the doubt of like, probably most people are good to start being like, wait a minute, maybe most people are that I don't know are secretly out to get me in some bad, weird agenda. Wow. And so obviously just the, he's scamming people with weddings, I guess, is the... 
overall and some other things as well yeah, but okay. it, but the wedding scammer we thought was a very catchy title and, and, <laughs> yeah. and also there were a lot of emotional stakes there but. totally like if you've been through planning a wedding that is a terrifying thought because yeah. you put so much trust into that person yeah uh okay well i'm so excited to hear the podcast uh for those of you listening out there it is the wedding scammer it's out now available wherever you listen to podcasts and now up next we're going to dive into the story of rudy carneowan a wine aficionado with a collection that was too good to be true. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life, at least not the ones you're thinking of, but they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home, like the ants in your kitchen the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Okay, so mm -hmm. Justin... We've got a wedding-themed con artist story to run through with you today. Uh, after all, most weddings feature wine. And now if we imagine uh, a very lavish wedding and the celebratory beverage served to the guests was a fake, a fraudulent mm. mix of cheaper wines, well, that's the story we're getting into today. I love it. I love these kinds of stories. I love true crime stories that don't have the body. And it's just like, <laughs> yeah, yes. you know, there is something fun about, okay, the stakes are a little lower. It's a lot of money. I, and like the, the scammer story, I mean, this one is exactly the same kind of con. During the 2000s, Rudy Kernawan sold millions of dollars worth of wine. Now, as far as we know, he was a one-man operation, single-handedly blending, bottling, and flipping cases of fake vintages to auction houses around the world. Talented guy. Yes, it's kind of amazing because if you think about it, you're like, well, I can imagine being intrigued to try it as mm -hmm. we've all like looked at those wine labels and scraped them off. Um, so let's get into it. Uh, although before we do, uh, among the many sources we used for today's episode, I want to recommend In Vino Duplicitous by Peter Hellman. His book on this scam was an incredible resource for this episode and is a must read for anyone interested in the story because we... Don't have time to get into every fascinating detail. So if you want to hear more, check out his book. Fantastic. Always, always good to go back to the source. Yes, exactly. And hear all the details. Uh, okay. Uh, well, the first twist starts right off the bat because this guy's name isn't actually Rudy. He was born Jean Juan Juan, 
but his parents changed his name to help him fit in due to discrimination and persecution faced by Chinese people living in Indonesia at the time, which is where he was. So his parents renamed him Rudy Kurniawan after a popular Indonesian badminton player. Mm -hmm. Not bad. I don't know anybody else named after badminton player. Uh, And now by the mid nineties, Rudy was like any other international student at California State University, Northridge. He's studying accounting, By all accounts, he's a good student, and he graduates. But with his student visa expiring, he starts to exhibit some uh, mendacious tendencies. He applies for political asylum due to the ongoing situation in Indonesia, but his application is denied. We can't say why, but it's worth noting that his mother successfully sought asylum within the United States, joining Rudy and one of his brothers in California in 2001. And then the government told him to leave the United States in 2003, but he claimed the letter was sent to a previous address. Uh, As we're about to find out, Rudy was uh, pretty busy at the time. Yeah, you know the thing, I've heard uh, people use the wrong address, the previous address excuse to avoid jury duty, but... It feels a little different when we're talking about falsifying information on an asylum application, right? That's, that, you know, it seems totally, like a little different. And I've always wondered, like, could I get away with Could you just say, oh, I don't live there? Sorry, I, I can't respond to this court summons. Yeah. But, you know, he just graduated from college. He was in his early 20s. You, you have some... You know, sympathy. You want to be generous and yeah. say that he was just really trying to strengthen his application. You know, didn't he was worried about having to return to Indonesia, right? And you know, I look at the notes and I see that there are a couple other details from Rudy's college experience. Like, and I, I love this part, right? Mm. Um, some of his classmates remember him saying that he had a a scholarship uh, for golf. He had a golf scholarship. Yes, but the coach didn't remember Rudy apparently at all. And and then there was another golf-related incident. He was accused of stealing a very valuable driver from the pro shop he worked at part-time. And this stuff seems small potatoes compared to, the, like, a mil- multi-million dollar fraud scheme. But, you know, one, I love a good golf scheme. <laughs> totally. Maybe there should be more golf schemes. And also it's amazing because you start to be like, wow, it's from the get-go. Like, at the very first level, like, oh, scholarship, everywhere he goes, it's like, oh, it's the pro shop, it's the scholarship, uh, some sort of con. And also just the moxie, like something yes. like a golf scholarship to be like, well, it's you clearly had it or not to just be like, yep, I'll just tell people I did. And exactly the kind of thing that I think we all fall for again, or just like, who would make that up? It doesn't necessarily give you any more immediate currency. It's not worth the lie. Could easily be fact-checked. So it's probably true. So in Rudy's case, like, oh, I probably did play golf, but he yeah. didn't. Uh, okay, so let's um, so for, forgive the pun, but decant <laughs> the story and we'll start to let her breathe. I love that. Uh, if you want to try to pinpoint Rudy's turn to wine, that takes us to San Francisco. Rudy's recently graduated. His family is gathered to celebrate his father's birthday, who's visiting from Indonesia. Definitely celebrating. Yes, they're getting into it big time because they're marking the occasion with a 1996 Opus One. Uh, for those who don't know wine, which would include me, it's a special Napa Valley Red founded by the famed Baron Philippe de Rothschild of the Bordeaux region and Robert Mondavé of California. 
on WineResearcher.com, you'll see that the average price for a standard 750 milliliter bottle of this vintage is nearly $500 today. So we can assume it was also a pricey bottle even when they were drinking it over 20 years Mm. ago. And Rudy's smitten. He loves the wine tasting experience. So he takes on a rigorous focus when it comes to learning about wine. He also happens to have time on his hands. He's living with his brother in Pasadena. So he starts to attend weekly wine tasting events in Mm. Glendale. And he's not just learning the lingo and how to fit in with a wine snob crowd. He is honing his sensory analysis skills, which will play a critical role in his confidence scheme. Mm. Okay, so we're a couple years removed from that dinner, and Rudy is now an amateur expert. He can identify the tasting notes associated with a given terroir. He can suss out grape varietals from the aroma alone. He's already taken his talents to the next level. See, this is what I'm saying. Very talented guy. And I am I am fascinated by totally. this origin story. And like, I'm already impressed. Like, that is actually a hard thing to do. I mean, I used to like, I mean, I still drink wine occasionally, but like, I used to try to be like, oh, okay, what is this? Mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cherry forward, yeah. chocolate in the back. And then finally gave up and was like, please, somebody <laughs> tell me what to get. Uh, so by early 2002, uh, You can say one thing that is certifiably true about Rudy. He knows wine. And now it's time to learn about the market and uh, meet his marks, as it were. So he makes his way to the big leagues, which is Paso Robles, California. For those who don't know, in 2015, the University of California Agricultural Issues Center at UC Davis did an economic impact study. The Paso Robles American Viticulture Area and Greater San Luis Obispo County Wine and Wine Grape Industries were found to have an economic impact of $1.9 billion to the regional economy per year. So it is a big business. And Rudy attends a charity auction there and uses that opportunity to build a reputation and show the rest of the wine world that he means business. He bids aggressively on a barrel of 2001 Syrah, Hmm. produced by California winery Sinquanone, He walked away with the equivalent of 24 bottles, 15 magnums, and six double magnums of a cult favorite vintage, and most importantly, the respect of his newfound peers for the low price for him of $25,000. Yeah, so he's starting to get into the scene, get known, and he doesn't stop there. Over the course of the next year, he attends more auctions across the country, getting invited to more exclusive events the more he spent. Soon enough, he's expanding his collection with rare, more valuable vintages. He graduates from noted California wines to more limited releases of French wines from Burgundy and Bordeaux. So by the end of 2002, he's reportedly spending around a million dollars a month on wine. This is the part that gets me. Because if he has that kind of money to spend on wine every month, why is he still scamming? That's, Why does he need to do this? So, I mean, you're like, how, if you have a million dollars of discretionary income a to month. spend on wine a, a month, month, a yeah. month, let alone a year, why do you even be like, I need to also be a criminal enterprise? But so where is this money coming from? Right. Because you're like, if he's just sitting around buying wine, right. how's he doing? Well, apparently from what the story looks like, it runs in the family, meaning scamming and therefore maybe where the money comes from. In 1994, one of Rudy's uncles, Eddie Tansel, was involved in perhaps the biggest banking scandal in Indonesian history. He embezzled about $430 million in bad loans from an Indonesian state-run bank. 
Tansel was sentenced to 20 years in prison, but escaped in May of 1996 and may have had help from some corrupt prison officials. Yeah. It's just never good to have your name associated with the biggest banking scandal in Indonesian history. <laughs> no, 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 it's one thing to like knock over a small bank when we're talking the biggest in a country's history. Yeah. And it seems to run in the family because in 1997, another Rudy's uncle's, Hendra Raharja, fled Indonesia after he got bank Harapan Santosa shut down by the government. The institution had misused millions of dollars in emergency loans, much of which had gone straight into Raharja's pocket. Now, it's possible he was therefore given a generous allowance by these very same uncles, and some of his friends speculated that his family owned a beer distribution network in Indonesia. Like Rudy's friends, we can't say for sure where the money came from. Okay, we've met Rudy. We followed him as he's learned about wine, the culture. He's met his future marks, you know, the people in the, in the market for these things. Um, in attending all these auctions, he's acquired this incredible collection that any enophile would only dream about. So another thing I'm seeing here in the notes is that he's actually established himself in the connoisseur community at yeah. this point. And he's been holding a lot of exclusive tastings um, at a friend's mansion, the back room of high-end restaurants, but crucially never at his house, right? Because right. he's sharing that home with his mother in Arcadia. Um, and it just kind of would have been a dead giveaway because this does not look like right. – if right. You, if you're if you're buying a million dollars of wine a month and you're, you're like, not oh, living by with the your way, mom. I live with my mom. Right. You're like, this could be the thing that actually gets somebody to be like, this yeah. is suspect. I, I think that's like a Mountain Dew connoisseur. <laughs> 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 yeah. But like it's but you, I can see where like people don't ask a lot of questions because it's pretty easy to just write them off at being a private person, right? Totally. Um, but I'm still not seeing the con here. Like you, you, a person can be deceptive. And I, I think about this a lot in relation to my podcast. A person yeah. can be deceptive without necessarily being a scammer. So totally. what, so, okay. What's the plan? Right, right. Exactly. It's one thing to lie, deceive, but like, what do you take advantage of? How do you get the payoff? Uh, so the moment we've been waiting for, let's break down the con. So whenever he went out to drink with friends, Rudy made sure to ask the restaurant to save their empty wine bottles for mm. him. Yeah, so whether he bought the wine or brought it from his own collection or bought it there. So sometimes what he'd do is he'd promise to write names on the bottom of the bottle, uh, like the, including the name of the restaurant and the date. They'd all drank together. Other times he'd say it was for his mother. So he'd make these excuses for like, oh, I'm doing this nice thing for right. you. We'll remember the occasion. Truth was... He'd inspect the bottles when he got home. If the labels were well-preserved, he'd set those bottles aside. Otherwise, he'd apparently soak the bottle in water and then carefully remove the label with plans to put a new label on later. Mm. And it was important to keep these bottles. Uh, I found this fascinating. I had no idea about this. Because high-quality wine comes in hand-blown glass bottles, which are much heavier than what you'd see in a common liquor store. Uh, I mean, so you'd have to even know that <laughs> if you want to fool anybody. Uh, then he'd make use of his unparalleled abilities to detect aromas, distinguish aftertastes, and remember mouthfeels mm. to make his deceptions convincing. So to the best of his ability, he then combined cheap wine to replicate some of the rarest vintages in the world. And then obviously he'd put those back in those bottles. Yeah. 
and then he'd scribble formulas on the bottles in his own shorthand, indicating how much of each wine he needed to fold in to create the perfect blend. So like his own private recipe for a con wine. Uh, and in case you're wondering about the corks, he didn't have to worry about that very much. Uh, when it comes to really old wine, decades old wine, it's not unusual for the original cork to dry out to the point where it has to be replaced. I'm picturing him like in his mother's basement with like beakers and like all like the scientific things and like a bottle of like Carlo Rossi and a box of wine and just trying to mix all these things. Totally. Right? It, it, it's exactly like the mad scientist scene with beakers, but it's it's wine. And this idea that I am fascinated by is that like you could take crappier wines and somehow mix them in a way that makes them taste like a better wine. Yeah, that's just, I, I cannot fathom. You know, I've, I've, never, I've never had a uh, bottle of wine that would... I've never had a glass of wine that I think that the, the connoisseur community would uh, would approve of. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it's this is just it's just amazing to me. And I guess like the next question is now that he has the product, how does he offload it? Right. Right. So it's sort of the same thing. Like, oh, you can make fake wine, but what good does it do you if you can't sell it? Well, we'll get into Rudy's move from wine buyer to wine seller, and then his eventual downfall right after this. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so with his plan together, Rudy makes his first foray into monetizing his scheme. In September of 2003, he rents out a fancy restaurant in Santa Monica, California for an exclusive tasting. The cost of admission is $4,800. That's a fair price for access to sample Rudy's exclusive collection. That's how upscale it is. And not all the wine is fake but he does mix in some fraudulent bottles with the real offerings. Mm, I, I like that. I like that touch, right? Yes. Yeah, it's not. It's like brazen to just like put all the fake, but to kind of like see how it goes. He's taking steps, which is like, I'm fascinated by somebody who has this much money and this much acumen and organization to be like, wow, why don't you just do something legit? I'm, th that is a big part of this. And I, the more I learn about con artists, yeah. the more I'm like, why don't you do anything besides this. Totally, because like, it takes so much work and, takes, like, presence all the time. It's it's a lot to keep up with. But, like, what I also like is that on some level, he's looking at these marks and being like, I don't care what they say. 
I don't care how much of an enophile they say they are. I don't care how refined they say their palate yes. is. My stuff is so good, they're not going to be able to tell. Totally, which has to be an amazing like ego challenge to be. Can I actually fool these people who think they're so great at this? I mean, did, but did it go over okay? Okay, so the night of the tasting, it does seem to go pretty well. Most people are fooled. Though in hindsight, one guest in particular noted in his personal journal that some of the wine did taste off. But this goes back to your point about a con artist. He didn't confront Rudy about this at the time because, of course, there's a degree of plausible uh, deniability. I mean, maybe Rudy had been duped. Maybe he, Rudy got conned, yeah, right? he could have gone by. Or maybe that one bottle is off uh, or something went wrong storing the wine that had a negative effect. Or, I mean, the wine tasting business is so subjective anyway even the most skilled enophiles might doubt their own palates. You don't want to be the one to be like, if everybody else is saying it's okay, maybe I'm wrong. So he doubted his uh, own doubts in that case. Uh, so by the end of the night, Rudy had his first taste of revenue. And that opened the door to more important events in the industry. Okay. So the first test, the first test was successful. Yes. Okay. Let's dig into the first big score. Okay. Because if he's spending up to a million dollars a month on wine, he has to have a plan to clear a fair amount, right? So um, it's not that he's not making money off these private tastings, but there has to be more. Completely. Like when you're like, wait a minute, if you're spending a million dollars a month, you have to make a million dollars a month at least. And that's a ton of money. So how do you get to the big money? Well, over the past couple of years, Rudy keeps climbing the social ladder in the wine world. So by 2004, he's been accepted into a social club in New York that easily clears hundreds of thousands of dollars of wine in a single dinner party. And now remember, through all this, he's still collecting rare vintages and emptying mm. bottles to create his own blends. And he's doing this now because he's acquired a new bit of critical knowledge to take it to the next level. Because if he wants to step up from hosting private tastings to auctions, he's going to have to be able to supply full cases of rare wine. Now, Rudy makes his first major score in 2006, and he does it with an unwitting partner, a man who's been looking to turn his family's small wine shop into a player on the auction scene. So they take over a hip restaurant in Greenwich Village. They trot out Rudy's offerings over the course of two days. And by the end of the auction, they've sold 1,742 lots of Rudy's wine for a cool $10.6 million. Wow. Yes. For wine, it's kind of mind-blowing. In fact, it's so popular, there are immediate calls for a reboot. So they set another date for October and his partner even gave him an advance to begin restocking his collection. So the way I see it, Rudy's got two options here. He can use this incredible windfall to go legit and acquire a legitimate collection for the October auction. Or he could spend the money living the high life. Totally. And this is where it happens with these stories. He picks the latter. Um, so I see in the notes, Rudy's about to turn 30. And from here, he goes on a spending spree. He had bought a man mansion in Bel Air, which is <laughs> big time. <laughs> big time, right. Um, that was the year before. And then he immediately begins gutting and remodeling it. And then he buys a, not just a Bentley, no. but a Bentley and a Ferrari. Gotta have both. <laughs> <laughs> and through this, we learn a little bit about our subject today, right? Yeah. He appears to be in it for the money and the lifestyle, so... He's so sure of himself at this point that he's willing to spend money as fast as it comes in. Totally. I mean, as to your point, like about going legit, 
He's got this $10 million. If he wanted, he could become a legit player in the wine world. He's got good taste. But going back to the golf scholarship, like that's not who he is. And he wants to spend that money. It's going right out. The wedding scammer? Yeah. Fabulous chef. He's an amazing chef. Right. So he could be a yep. legit chef. But could like, be a legit chef. It's not enough. Well, things start to go even faster for Rudy. Uh, but before we get to the next score, I want to start the clock ticking on the uh, eventual time bomb because it's important to note here that Rudy does have a little bit of a cushion because people that buy these rare high-priced wines don't usually drink them that same night. Right. They're for special occasions. It's the whole point of like I a rare wine. I love this detail. I do too because it's like, right, you'd never think like, oh, they're not going to look for it for years, maybe decades. If you buy a lemon in a car, you're going to be driving the car and realize <laughs> that it's <laughs> off the lot. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. But with the, with wine, it might be it, it might be like you're – daughter's wedding in 20 years. Totally. You're like, I bought this one bottle. I'm going to wait for it. In fact, some collectors don't ever drink them. They're just a status symbol sitting on the shelf. But before we get to Rudy's downfall in October, 2006, he has reached the pinnacle of the wine world. At the time, the record for the highest grossing wine auction was held by Sotheby's when they grossed $14.4 million from an event in 1999. Rudy's auction smashes this record to pieces. His partner stood at the front of the room, a gavel in one hand and a glass of wine in the other, and sold 2,310 lots of Rudy's wine. At the end of the auction, Rudy and his partner totaled up their sales. They had made $24.7 million. Now I got it. Now, I <laughs> now you're starting to see why it didn't yeah. go legit. So with this new score, Rudy bought his own wine shop in Los Angeles and was profiled by the LA Times. He was single-handedly driving up prices for certain vintages on the global market. And, of course, more people were starting to take notice. In fact, a wine consultant rightfully noted that he didn't know if Rudy could continue distributing vintages at this pace because the rarity of these wines was fundamentally due to the fact that there's a very limited supply to begin with. The whole right. point of a rare wine is there's not much of it. So this idea that like, oh, this guy can just sell cases and cases of it uh, can't be quite right. Also, other collectors took note along those lines. And uh, the thing about scamming wealthy targets is that they have the means to support their own investigations and don't have to rely on law enforcement agencies committing resources to investigate the scam or having time in your hands from pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I would. I don't think I'm as I was started out as sophisticated. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll see what my next career looks yes. like. But um, it sounds like the tables are starting to turn on him at this point. And here in the notes, I see that the renovations to his Bel Air to his Bel Air home they're running over budget. And I'll, I'll say this: contractors, the real scammers. <laughs> right, totally. Now we know. You could have told him that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Rudy. You know, we we, we have notes. Um, but the. The renovations are going over budget. They're taking longer than expected. He's now carrying around a chihuahua, kind of like he's Paris Hilton, like a lot of celebrities did around around then in the mid-2000s. Let's let that go, people. Let's <laughs> let, let that lie in the past. Yeah. You know, God, I hate to keep bringing up the wedding scammer. Yeah. He's got a little teacup Yorkie. Oh, my God. I'll show you a picture. <laughs> um, but he's running a business now, and there are... Probably unforeseen expenses associated with this enterprise. He was on top of the world in October 2006, but as soon as the calendar flips to 2007, he has a cash flow problem. Yeah. On top of that, all that goodwill that he curried during his rise to stardom is starting to run out. 
he's harassing his friends in restaurants to return wine bottles, which I, can you imagine getting those phone calls? It's like, Rudy, we, yeah. Yeah. we're not saving wine bottles yeah, for you. A, this, this weird thing you got going on. You know, like, no more. Yeah, we're uh, done with it. Um, it's not hard, hard to imagine that early on they were happy to support his sentimentality, but, you know, at a certain point it becomes inconvenient. And it's just not common practice in this community, right? I would assume for everyone to keep every bottle. Totally. And I think especially in the world of higher-priced wine, uh, there's something probably almost declassé about holding it because it's like you have this money. You're like, no, you let it go. You spent the bottle. You're like, oh, I got to keep that. You're like, yeah. no, you buy another I'm one. Sure, I mean, like, like college freshmen, right? They're putting, <laughs> putting all the bottles of Jack Daniels on there. You know? <laughs> totally. I imagine here and there people are doing that with the wine bottle. But, yeah. You know. um, but, you know— I see in the notes here, the two, that some of the high-end restaurants that he frequented to host parties, they changed their policies to say that they had to dispose empty bottles. I mean, the thing is, we're living in California. A lot of recycling goes on here. Yeah, totally. And you know you're starting to get in trouble when places are changing their policy because of your <laughs> behavior. You're like, uh-oh. And in fact, he's got even bigger problems than annoying some of his friends because people are starting to now drink the wine they bought at that auction oh, no. in early 2006. Yes. Oh, no. Yeah, his fake blends are not passing the taste test. At a tasting party in January 2007, a group of Burgundy enthusiasts were excited to share the night with Christophe Rumier, grandson of the famed winemaker Georges Rumier. Now, Christophe had taken over his family's winery in 1992 and was so excited to taste vintages that had purportedly been bottled by both his father and grandpa. But when Christophe was presented with a bottle of 1923 Bon Mar, he was a little confused. His grandfather hadn't founded Domaine Georges Romet until 1924. Hmm. Hmm, that's interesting. And it is possible to sometimes come across an extremely rare vintage that's been bottled before the winery had been made official. Sure. So a find like that would be unusual, but not totally unheard of, except when Christophe tasted it, mm. pursed his lips, shook his head. And with a grimace on his face, told the table there was no way his family had bottled the wine he'd just sipped. And by the end of the night, the group was confident that six of the 11 bottles they'd purchased from Rudy were fake. And then when they looked closer, they noticed inconsistencies in the labels. So they went after Rudy's partner, the owner of the wine shop that served as the auction house for Rudy's lots, and were ultimately refunded $500,000. Hmm. Yeah. And that was just the beginning. The wine shop would be forced to refund much more money over the next few months. The wine auction house and shop that Rudy had partnered with ends up filing a $1 million lien against Rudy, and that sends him into a panic. And that this is, sounds like to me, where things are really falling apart, yeah, right? Yeah, dominoes are starting to fall. Yeah. Because at this point, Rudy is doing what he can to salvage the situation, and he's begging the friends he has left for money, and some of them still trust him enough to give him a hand. But instead of using this money to pay off the lien, I love this. He reinvested it in the scam. Double down. Yeah, just chasing that high. <laughs> looking to He was looking to acquire materials to stir up a new batch of wine. Mm. And while the board of the wine shop successfully filed the lien, his partner still advocated for him. And he gave him one last shot to make good. But the domains were one step ahead of Rudy, I'm seeing here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm so interested. This part's so fascinating too, because 
this wine partner, again, somebody who's been scammed actually by Rudy as well, uh, even though he's sort of in on the profits, still hoping he's legit, still like, I'll give you one more chance to sell real wine, not realize like he's never been selling real wine. Well, this is, scams are emotional things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you, we, we never want to believe we're being like, like I was talking about earlier, but we never want to believe we're being scammed by this person we know, or yeah. you know, taking advantage of it anyway. But scams are emotional. I've yeah. spoken, I've spoken to other con men yeah. and in the process of making this podcast, that was fun. Oh my gosh. But they're like, but they're, they're like scams are, they're either, they either look to, they're either about love or, you know, they're preying on your ambition or your personal relationship. And like, this is how they work. Totally. Wow. Amazing. But um, back to this story. At an auction in 2008, um, Laura Ponceau, I love saying that name, <laughs> he's the head of Domaine Ponceau, and he inspected some of Rudy's lots. And he pointed to bottles of Clos Saint-Denis. I, I just love saying these words. So nice, right? Clos Saint-Denis. And these were in the catalog, and five of which boasted vintages as far back as 1945. And he noted that they were clearly fake. Uh, this is the thing. Is can't, get on the, can't get on the wrong side of the wine, people. No. Um, because his family had, his family had not started producing uh, Clos on Dunny until 1982. And another, another one of Rudy's bottles claimed to be from 1929. But Domaine Ponceau, they didn't start producing that particular wine until 1934. This seems to be a running theme, not only with Rudy, but with your scammer well of just like blatantly getting dates and times wrong that could be checked and just like assuming it's going to wash by. Well, most people don't bother checking, but the problem mm -hmm. is when you get people that like know this stuff really well. Yes. You know? And when the value is based on that. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? But um, his wines were pulled from the auction and his relationship with his longtime partner was officially severed. And by the end of 2008, he'd owe them more than $7 million. Wow. Well, he actually owed a lot of people money. His friends who had lent him cash in late 2007, his former partner's wine shop, individual wine collectors he had defrauded, and his own lawyers he'd paid to buy him time. So by February of 2012, he makes one last-ditch effort to sell fake wine at an auction house in London, still trying to dig himself out of this hole, but the wine didn't even reach the final catalog of offerings. The international wine community notified the auction house of his repeated fraud, and they pulled the listing. The jig was up. So the following month, the FBI is at his door. Rudy was put on their radar soon after the first lien was levied against him. They opened a formal investigation a couple of years later and worked with lawyers and private investigators retained by the wealthy collectors he defrauded to build the case. Now, when they raided his home on the morning of March 8th, 2012, they found everything you'd need to run the operation. There were wine bottles everywhere mm. they looked. Rolling on the floors, laying in the fridge, standing on the countertops and windowsills, sitting in the kitchen sink, soaking in water, their labels slowly peeling oh off. God. The FBI opened box after box of labels, wax seals, rubber stamps, bearing various winery names. Sure. Yep. Everything you'd expect. They found a couple of bins filled with glue and stencils and patterned scissors and another with lead capsules and corks and foil. The entire operation just sitting there in the open. This is this is just crazy because he was running this. He was essentially running a successful business. Totally right. right. You're like that's everything it takes to actually bottle wine, it's, and yet doing it from and also like at this point, 
Do you not know you're getting caught? Like everybody is turned on you. You have no more money. Everybody knows like you didn't even hide it. And as if the rest of this evidence wasn't damning enough, the FBI also clocked several wines in the process of being mixed. Yes, the formulas for Rudy's blends were written on the sides of the bottles awaiting his creations. Rudy's case uh, finally goes to trial in December of 2013. After more than a week of trial, the jury took just one evening to reach their verdict. They found Rudy guilty of several accounts of fraud. Did they celebrate that verdict with a glass of wine? With a glass of wine, yeah, of his wine. Yeah, exactly. He was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison and nearly $30 million in restitution to his victims. Mm. That is a lot of wine. Uh, Upon his release in April 2021, Rudy was officially deported to Indonesia. Yeah. And the 2016 documentary Sour Grapes estimates that as many as 10,000 bottles of Rudy's counterfeit wine may still be in private collections. Who knows? You, Who knows? You, you might sip one someday. We might all. Like, you could maybe be at a restaurant, or if you get into one of these crazy wine tasting parties, it could be the fake yeah. wine. So trust your trust your taste buds out there. Trust your palate. Yes. If it tastes bad, it might actually be bad. Um this is just such an amazing story, Carter. And I just thank you so much for having me on. I just, I love this story. I do too. Thank you so much for being here. I can't believe how much these stories overlap too. It's the same kind of personality type. Uh, and there's something about just recognizing that they're in society, that they might have the capacity to take a legit route, but something drives them to this con artist way. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Well, Thank you so much for joining us. And to our listeners, if you enjoyed this story and looking for another scam, please subscribe to Justin's new show, The Wedding Scammer. It's out now, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify podcast. Amongst the many sources we used, we found the book In Vino Duplicitous by Peter Hellman, the articles Chateau Sucker by Benjamin Wallace for New York Magazine, and A Vintage Crime by Michael Steinberger for Vanity Fair, as well as the documentary Sour Grapes, extremely helpful to our research. Do you have a personal relationship to the stories we tell? Send a short audio recording telling your story to conspiracystories at spotify.com. Until next time, remember, the truth isn't always the best story, and the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify podcast. This episode was written by Julian Boireau, with writing assistance by Ellie Reed and Abigail Cannon, researched by Bradley Klein, fact-checked by Lori Siegel and Bennett Logan, and sound designed by Alex Button. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our head of production is Nick Johnson, and Spencer Howard is our post-production supervisor. I'm your host, Carter Roy.